Welcome to another episode of the Ad Law Access Podcast. My name is Gonzalo Mond, and I'm joined by my colleague, Lauren Myers, to talk about some FTC rules that you should probably know. A few weeks ago, we posted about a $9.3 million FTC settlement involving the mail order rule. And that rule hasn't received a lot of attention over the past decade, so a number of people commented that they'd never heard of it and wondered what else they might be missing. In fact, the FTC has more than 50 rules and guides. Most of those have a very narrow application, though, and unless you're in certain industries, they shouldn't apply to you. But many rules do apply far more broadly. Lauren and I came up with six rules that we thought many of our listeners should know. I'm going to talk about the first three, and then Lauren will talk about the second three. And let's start with the mail order rules, since that's what prompted this podcast. That rule generally requires you to have a reasonable basis for any shipping representations you make. So, for example, if you say that you're going to ship the next day, you need to have a good reason to believe that you can actually do that. If you don't make any shipping representations, you need to have a reasonable basis to believe that you can ship within 30 days. 30 days is a lot of time, and it's not usually a problem these days when fast shipping is the norm but COVID-19 has made things more complicated. If you can't ship within the required time, you have to notify the customer. The rule specifies exactly what you need to include in the notice, including a disclosure that the customer has a right to cancel. The rule also addresses what happens if you experience a second delay and what you need to include in that notice. Since we have six rules to cover today, I won't go into all the details, but you can find more information on our blog and on our Advertising Privacy Resource Center. Keep in mind that if a customer asks you to cancel an order, or if you decide to do that yourself, you need to promptly issue a refund, and you can't just substitute merchandise. Although the mail order rule hasn't been the subject of a lot of enforcement in recent years, some recent cases, including the one we mentioned at the outset, serve as a good reminder that this rule is still relevant today. Next, let's talk about the can-spam rule. If you're sending marketing emails, that's certainly going to apply to you. Can-spam divides most content into two general categories. The first is commercial content that advertises or promotes a commercial product or service. And the second is transactional content that either facilitates an agreed-upon transaction or updates a customer about a transaction. So, for example, a receipt, a shipping notification, or even one of the mail order rule notices that we just talked about. The message contains more than one type of content. The primary purpose of the email is the deciding factor. That's a fuzzy concept that depends a little bit on how a consumer views an email, but the FCC considers things like what's in the subject line and how the message is divided between commercial and transactional content. In addition to prohibiting certain types of deceptive acts, CanSpam generally requires commercial emails to include a disclosure that identifies the message as an ad, and you have flexibility in how to do that. You have to include your physical address, and you have to include a free and easy-to-use unsubscribe mechanism. Keep in mind that you need to honor opt-out requests within 10 days. Not doing that is one of the biggest sources of complaints for companies. The third thing we want to cover today are the FTC's endorsement guides. 
These have been around since 1980, and they cover a lot of ground. But the key issue driving the majority of FTC investigations over the past decade relates to the disclosure of material connections between endorsers and the companies whose products they're endorsing. As a general matter, if a celebrity, an influencer, or even a regular consumer has a material connection to your company, that person has to disclose that connection when talking about your products. And although that concept may seem relatively straightforward, it can actually be complicated to put into practice. So three key points here. First is that the term endorsement should be read broadly. Now, obviously, if a person says positive things about your products, that's an endorsement. But the FTC has said that even simply tagging your brand or just posting pictures of products without saying anything more can be an endorsement. Second, the term material connection should be read broadly as well. If you give an endorser money or free products, that's obviously a relationship that should be disclosed. But the FTC has held that things like discounts, sweepstakes entries, or other perks can also constitute material connections that trigger the disclosure requirement. And third, disclosure should be made in clear language and presented in a way that's hard to miss. If an endorser uses a hashtag, it should be at something that, some, that consumers are likely to understand. For example, the FTC encourages influencers to avoid abbreviations and shorthand. Also keep in mind that the disclosure has to be readily visible to consumers without having to click on anything. Now, many companies that work with endorsers do a fairly good job of communicating these requirements, but many fail to ensure that endorsers actually comply. As a result, if you look a lot of, at a lot of the recent FTC settlements in this area, you'll see that the FTC is putting more emphasis on monitoring and making sure that companies are actually following up to ensure that their guides are, um, that, that the influencers comply with their guides. Now, as I mentioned, the endorsement guides cover more ground, but we wanted to keep our focus on the current hot topics. Now I'll turn it over to Lauren to talk about the next three rules that we've identified. Thanks, Gonzalo. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the green guides or the guides for the use of environmental marketing claims. These guides provide the FTC's general guidance for making claims about the environmental benefits of a product or service. Like if you say something is recyclable or if you reference carbon offset purchases. While the green guides themselves aren't legally binding, any violation of the green guides is a violation of the FTC Act. And some states have adopted the green guides into state law, so they're important to pay attention to. Generally, the FTC advises against making claims like environmentally friendly because these broad claims can be difficult to substantiate. Instead, the FTC recommends making limited environmental claims that the marketer can substantiate with pre-existing substantiation. As with all claims, it's important to make sure that you have substantiation for environment, environmental claims before you make them. The green guides provide details about what type of substantiation is necessary for different types of claims, but a marketer should never make claims without substantiation. The substantiation you have should influence the type of claim you ultimately make, and the claim should be specific to that substantiation. For example, 
If you have substantiation that shows that a liquid shampoo is biodegradable, but the bottle the shampoo is packaged in is not biodegradable, any biodegradable claims that you make should clearly apply to the shampoo specifically and not to the product as a whole. Next, let's talk about CAFA. While there currently isn't a comprehensive federal privacy law in place, Congress did enact the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, to address children's online information privacy. COPPA and its associated regulations are very complex, so we won't go into much detail here, but you can find more information about COPPA in our Advertising and Privacy Law Resource Center. Generally, COPPA applies to the operators of websites directed towards children under the age of 13 or operators that have actual knowledge that they are collecting personal information from children younger than 13. Personal information is defined broadly and includes common information like name and email address and more discrete pieces of information like online identifiers. Whether a website is child-directed is a context-specific inquiry and often depends on the site content. So if I have a website that features videos with animated characters that would likely appeal to children, it's likely that my website is child-directed. But even if I don't have a child-directed website, if I know that my site is collecting children's information anyway, then the COPPA requirements still kick in. Often, websites that have a mixed audience use age screens to determine whether or not COPPA applies in each specific instance. The FTC's COPPA rule imposes a number of requirements on operators, including providing notice to and getting consent from parents before collecting children's personal information. COPPA gives the FTC direct civil penalty authority, which means the agency can seek fines in the first offense. These fines can add up. Recently, the FTC settled a case with Google for $170 million for allegations that YouTube violated COPPA. These costly penalties are even more of a reason to make sure you're complying with COPPA requirements. Finally, let's briefly discuss the guides against deceptive pricing. These guides apply to price comparisons, such as comparing a price to a former price or comparing a price to a suggested retail price. The baseline requirement for all pricing claims is that they must be truthful. So for example, if you're comparing a product's price to a previous price, you have to make sure that you offered the product at that previous advertised price for a reasonable amount of time. You don't, you don't have to have made any sales at that price, but you must have at least offered the product at that price. Often the guides come up when a marketer wants to compare its price to a suggested retail price. Any suggested price that you're advertising should be the common price for a product, not one that a marketer has made up to otherwise encourage product sales. While the FTC hasn't regularly enforced these guides, private litigants often bring false advertising cases about this issue specifically claiming that suggested retail prices are false and that the marketer never offered the product for that price in the marketplace. These are just a few of the many rules the FTC enforces. If you'd like to learn more about these rules or other important consumer protection and data privacy issues, 
You can read our article, visit our Advertising and Privacy Law Resource Center, or follow our blog, Ad Law Access, which are all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening.